And um, I, was just go, I just went through with him all the evidences, a lot more than I'm going to do in this sermon series. We spent a couple hours at it. And uh, when it got to about 2 in the morning, he reached the stage of agreement. He said, yeah, I can see where all this looks like it happened, but I don't care. Don't want that kind of world, don't want to be part of that kind of thing. You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that thou art. So, I followed a link on the internet to a video that distressed me this week. Now you're thinking, duh, Pastor, it's the internet, of course. Um, but I, uh, I'll tell you why it distressed me uh, here. Um, it, it was, actually, before I tell you why it distressed me, I want to share with you what I liked about the video, because I am going to be critical of it, so it's important to start with what I liked about it. It was uh, by a fellow Christian. It was uh, by a fellow apologist. An apologist is someone who either explains the faith to people who don't share it or defends the faith against attack. So I was in complete sympathy with this person as I followed the link. And I liked what he had done uh, up to a point. Um, he had engaged someone who was, had been very publicly critical of him. In fact, on her own YouTube channel, she had been, um, let's say, critical using lots of choice special occasion words um, about how she didn't like this, this person and what he had had to say. And he did what Christians are supposed to do in that case. He reached out to her um, in love and in fact sent her a gift. He and his wife sent her a gift and uh, this encouraged her to uh, at least have a conversation with him and in that conversation he invited her to come on a show and just have a conversation. Let her ask whatever she wanted to ask and he would respond in whatever ways. And uh, I thought that was all good up to there and I, I loved uh, a lot of the conversation I heard. But there was a place where he kind of, I felt, went off track. Um, she brought up the fact, she said, we know there's a lot of really crazy stories in the Bible, a lot of stories that are, you know, ridiculous and impossible to believe. And um, in response to that criticism, I'm going to turn off that microphone because that is humming terribly. All right. So in response to that uh, criticism, he quoted 1 Corinthians 1.19 which is actually referencing other parts of Scripture including, uh, in the Old Testament. And it go, that, that Scripture reads like this. God is speaking, and God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And it's a, obviously it's through Scripture, so it's, it's not a, a foreign sentiment. But I think he misapplies it critically. I always say how context is so important to derive your, your meaning from Scripture. And um, 1 Corinthians, at that section, is talking narrowly about what God has done in what St. Paul calls the word of the cross. Okay, What God was doing in the cross of Jesus Christ, narrowly. 
Um, and so what he's pointing out is that no Jewish rabbi, no Greek philosopher, no Roman statesman would ever predict that God would conquer by being conquered. As we proclaimed in the, the opening hymn, and you'll hear again in our, our um, thought for the day, it's one of the most ancient hymns of the church begins, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death, and upon those in the tomb bestowing life. That's one of the most ancient Easter hymns. Uh, Matt Maher picked it up and put it in a praise song, and we'll hear that during the offering of a thought. Um, but it's, it's the centerpiece of our faith, and it's what no one expected. That's how God was thwarting the, the discernment of the discerning and destroying the wisdom of the wise is in the cross turning our expectations on their head, allowing himself to be defeated so that he could in turn defeat death from the inside out. Now that's not a principle to be applied generically to the Christian life or to the interpretation of Scripture. And that's where this guy went. He quoted this, this Scripture to say, well, you know, God purposely put these impossible-to-believe stories in there so that we would have to shut off our brain in order to believe the Christian message, have faith instead of knowledge. And I think that is exactly wrong. Exactly and absolutely wrong. It's tragically wrong, in fact. Um, it's out of step with what Christians have proclaimed for close to 2,000 years and uh, the Jews before us. Um, it's tragic because it plays into a lot of stereotypes that um, unbelieving people will have, especially aggressive unbelieving people will have about Christians, that we're feeble-minded, that we're emotionally immature and just need something to believe in, and so we will even turn away from the plain evidence of our senses and our brain in order to believe those things. Um, these are prejudices I held myself at one time when I was unbelieving. Um, it's tragic in that way, and it's also tragic because it upholds this stereotype, which you'll hear people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris repeat over and over again, which is that faith is belief in spite of the evidence. But Christian belief is not belief in spite of the evidence. Christian belief is belief based upon the evidence. And that's what we're going to be exploring in the next couple of weeks together in the sermon series. Today's going to lay a foundation for that. But the first thing I want to say is that when you come to those hard-to-believe or impossible-to-believe um, stories in the Bible, and that's, she called them that because they don't square with our personal experience of the world. Okay? Um, and they don't. But that's exactly why they were included in the Bible. The people who wrote these stories down knew that they were out of step with what we mostly experience most of the time. They knew they were extraordinary. And that's why they wrote them down in the first place. These weren't hicks that couldn't tell fact from fantasy. They had a more intimate knowledge of most of the things of life than you and I do. Because we live a lot of our lives mediated by screens. We see a lot of reality through those screens. A lot of things I only know about because I've seen it on a screen, they had to do in person. Okay. Um, so when 
they knew when they included these stories in the Bible that they were out of step with what we all experience day to day. They knew that when you build a man out of mud, he doesn't come to life and walk around. But they still included Genesis 2 in the Bible. They know that when you look over your shoulder at a city, you don't usually turn into a pillar of salt. But that's what they said happened to Lot's wife. Because that's what happened to Lot's wife. They knew that donkeys don't generally respond badly or address their masters negatively, except with, but that's exactly what they have Balaam's donkey doing, is talking to Balaam. They knew these were extraordinary things. Then you get into the New Testament. Now these are people who spend a lot of their time breeding animals and paying a lot of attention to genealogies. They had a very short life expectancy compared to us. They knew how breeding worked. They knew how babies are made, to put it bluntly. So when they include the story of the virgin birth, it's because it was unusual. So was the raising of the dead, which is why they include the stories of Jesus raising up Jairus' daughter or Lazarus. They knew dead people didn't come back to life. They knew that once the pulse was gone and the body was cold, that was it. And it's, as we, since we're talking about what Jesus did, they also set aside his resurrection from even those stories. Because when Jairus' daughter and Lazarus were raised from the dead, they eventually went on, lived their normal lifespan and died. But Jesus was raised up to never die again. The holes in his hands and the hole in his side were there for Thomas to stick his finger into. He wasn't healed. He was raised and raised forever. And now he lives and reigns with his Father in heaven from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead, as we say in the creeds. These things were included specifically because they were extraordinary circumstances, which meant that God was doing something extraordinary, drawing attention to it by what we call a miracle, or St. John refers to as a sign in our gospel today. They're not meant to force us to check our brains at the door. They're meant to alert our brains that something unusual is happening here. But these stories do chasten us. They do bring us a little humility when it comes to our intellect. In the words of Shakespeare, they alert us to the fact that there may be more in heaven and on earth than is dreamt of in our philosophy. And God might still have a few surprises up his sleeve. God might have a few things to reveal to us. And it chastens us especially when it comes to the moral dimension of our lives. If you step outside of Christian faith for a moment and look at it from the outside the way that an academic would look at it, the way my wife looks at, has to look at it through her own discipline of anthropology, the unique contribution of Judaism and by extension Christianity to world religion in general is what's called ethical monotheism, which is, means not just belief in one God, but in one God who tells you what is right and what is wrong, which is not quite the same thing as telling you what to do and what not to do. What is right and what is wrong. So, Christians are supposed to attend to the evidence. We're supposed to explore the evidence. We're supposed to pay attention and test it. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, at the beginning of it, Luke writes to Theophilus, I'm writing this thing to you so you can know the basis of your faith. You've, you've come to believe. Let me tell you how solid it is. I've done the research. Here it is. 
So we're called upon to engage our minds and not check them at the door. So we're going to talk a little bit about evidence and how the kind of evidence our minds would engage with. Um, we're going to check, talk about it all through the sermon series, but today we're going to lay the foundation. Um, how many of you like crime dramas? CSI, Perry Mason. I liked Perry Mason. Perry Mason was on from 12 to 2. If I got out of school, if I had a sick day, I could watch Perry Mason from 12 to 2. I love Perry Mason. But anyway, so you know how it works. They, all these crime dramas culminate in the main thing. After the research, they end up in the courtroom and you, you're, they're, you're, you're searching for who done it and the conviction. So there's two types of evidence you can produce in a court of law, okay? Let's see. There we go. So, types of evidence. First type is scientific evidence, right? Scientific evidence is easily distinguishable from the other kind. It's verifiable by repeated results under scientifically controlled circumstances. Okay? This is the kind of... When they call in the expert witness, they're basing what they're, they're testifying upon based upon scientific evidence. You have to reproduce the result over and over and over again. So Alyssa Smale, who's a member of our congregation, is getting her master's degree right now in forensic science. And they get to do things like they had... We had real, there was a really fun picture of her on the internet. She and her classmates uh, in the master's program, they're in these long white trench coats and they're covered in blood because it was blood day. And they were, they were literally told to play with the blood all day. Um, I guess it, I think with sheep's blood it, can, it, it has a lot of the same properties as human blood so you have to check how fast it clots and what its tensile strength is and all this stuff so they ended up throwing it at each other it looked like a mud fight it was kind of gross but, <laughs> but they re- you have to be able to repeat something in the clinically controlled environment um, just like any other scientific test you want to be able to control the variables to see how much gunpowder residue is left at a distance of 5 foot or 10 foot or 15 foot all those things. Um, so all scientific evidence is based upon being able to repeat the results under controlled circumstances. Um, it's also verifiable by observable phenomenon. All science, you have to observe your phenomenon, note it down carefully, and get your results. It also has to be verifiable by uninvolved parties. You are immediately disqualified as a, an expert witness in a courtroom if you were present at the scene of the crime. You can't testify because you're involved in the circumstance. An expert witness has to be uninvolved in the circumstance and testify from the outside in. Now there's another type of evidence that's, that you can introduce in a courtroom. And the other type of evidence is testimonial evidence. Okay? Testimonial evidence. It's a little different than scientific evidence. It's not verifiable by repeated results under controlled conditions because it's a one-time event, usually occurring in scientifically uncontrolled circumstances. This is key. If you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States, you believe it because someone else told you that it was true. You're trusting the testimony of someone else who was actually part of the event in question. You weren't there. In these crime dramas, I have never once seen Perry Mason or anyone else say, we have to redo the murder to see if our theory is right. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Like scientific evidence, it's rooted, though, in observable phenomenon. And here's the key part. It's inaccessible to uninvolved parties. 
If you're not involved in it, you can't testify to it. You can't testify at one person removed in a court of law. That's hearsay. You have to have direct experience. Now, Jewish and Christian theology is unique because it is rooted in the testimonies of people who observed God interact with the world and then wrote it down. In today's reading from Revelation, we see St. John is instructed, write down what you see in a book and send it to the assemblies, the churches. That's what the word church means, is assembly. Send it to those people who are gathering. Let them know. This is a common pattern. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. People wrote down the histories. People wrote down the prophecies and reported what they had seen. This is why we have two sets of testaments. We have an Old Testament, which is full of older testimonies, and a New Testament, which is full of newer testimonies. All of our scriptures are testimonies by people who interacted with the situation. And all of these things build up for us toward what we believe. As we heard St. John say at the end of the 20th chapter, these things were written down that you might believe and have life. That's why people wrote these things down. But English is a kind of impoverished language when it comes to the language of faith or belief. The more words you have for something, the finer a distinction you can make. I have a friend who's a brain surgeon, literally. One of my high school friends, we were on Creative Writing Magazine together. Your people say like, ah, you know, brain surgeon. She actually is. She's actually one of the top flight brain surgeons. She goes back and forth from here to Austria doing brain surgery. When I look at a brain, I see a brain. If you catch me right as I'm coming out of the Franklin Institute and have walked through that section of the Franklin Institute, I can probably give you five or six parts of a brain. I can't remember them right now. She looks at a brain and has hundreds of words for all the things that make up that organ. She can make very fine distinctions because she has a vocabulary to do it. Well, it's the same way with faith. If you use one word for faith, it's easy to misapply things. But when the Reformers were doing their work in the 1500s, both Lutherans and Calvinists had a different language at their disposal than we have. The scholarly language of the day was Latin, and there were three words for faith. And they made distinctions between what these levels of faith were. What we're talking about when we talk about evidence is this level of faith, notitia, knowledge. Okay? The level of knowledge. This is pretty obvious. You can't believe in Jesus? So you've heard about Jesus. You've got to get the knowledge. You can't believe that he's the fulfillment of the prophecies to Israel until you learn some of the prophecies to Israel. You can't know that he's the Savior of the world and the Son of God until you learn a couple of other things, not just about the world around you, but yourself. And then what it means to have a Savior. All these, this is just the knowledge, laying out the facts. This is Harry Morgan, right? Just the facts, ma'am. You lay that out. And upon that foundation of knowledge, that foundation of data, is built the next level of faith, and that is a census. Looks like the English word assent for a reason. It means the same thing. Agreement. It's agreement. You not only build up this body of facts and you go, hmm, that's very interesting, but then you start to say, wait a minute, that has some application to my life. Okay? This is when you move from studying electricity in the generic to building circuit boards. 
You're saying that this has some sort of relevance to me. It has an impact on my life. In the case of historical things, it can have significant importance for you. Um, And once you cross that line, once you assent to the fact that it has some relevance for your life and you're starting to see that impact, then comes the final level of faith, fiducia. You don't see this word too much in English anymore except as it relates to money, right? Fiduciary. Um, Maybe since we're off the gold standard, maybe in God we trust is the most clear thing we say on our money. (laughs) But the word fiducia means trust. That's what it means. And when we say Allah Ephesians 2, 18 and 19, we are saved by grace through faith, this is what we're talking about. Faith that is trust in God. Trust in what God is doing. Trust in what God has done for us. So all the steps that we're all familiar with from living together as people are built into faith. First you acquire the knowledge. Then you assent or agree that that is true. And true for you. So it has an impact on your life. You start to explore the relevance of that for you personally. And then ultimately you can trust what it means. Now, the, the differences between these are key. Um, a couple of years ago, I had a, a whole night with my one cousin, and we started talking through the resurrection stuff. And um, I, was just go, I just went through with him all the evidences, a lot more than I'm going to do in this sermon series. We spent a couple hours at it. And uh, when it got to about 2 in the morning, he reached the stage of agreement. He said, yeah, I can see where all this looks like it happened, but I don't care. Don't want that kind of world. Don't want to be part of that kind of thing. He got to agreement and couldn't step up to trust. Because the transition from agreement to trust is not about acquiring more facts. That's a step of the will. That is laying down your arms and noting duly In the face of revelation that I'm a rebel, I have been fighting against God and I'm willing to let Him be God and I'll stop trying to be that. I'll stop trying to make the rules and realize maybe someone who loves me and knows better than I do should make them for me. And that's the trust piece. And um, the best story I've ever heard about that, I'm sure I've told it before, but I'll tell it again. Repetition's the mother of skill. Um... It was taught to me by my uh, systematic theology professor when I was in seminary. And um, I'm going to take you back to the days of yesteryear when um, they used to send people over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Remember those? You've seen those old cartoons and stuff like that? I think I know it from Oggy Dog and Doggy Daddy. I think they did that one time. Um, But, uh, you know, this is people trying to get famous, right? See, trying to get your five minutes of fame was not invented with YouTube. Okay. And they would send people over the barrel. Well, then someone had to go over in a bigger barrel or a smaller barrel or you send two people over together. Well, that got old and so people started trying something else. They started stringing a tightrope across the falls and one guy decides to go ahead and do it and, and he gets his name in the paper. Well, you can't get your name in the paper for doing the same thing the last guy did so it has to keep, you have to keep up in the ante. Well, the next guy says, well, I'm going to do it without that long balancing thing that he, this guy used. Okay, so he's going to do that next. Well, he succeeds. Well, the next guy's got to figure out what to do. And he's like, well, okay, 
I'm going to do it with an obstruction. I'm going to go the whole way across on this tightrope, pushing a wheelbarrow. So the morning of, he, he is up there, he's getting ready to step out onto the rope, and the crowd is gathered, and some are cheering, and some are booing. But one guy's cheering very enthusiastically. He's had a good night at the pubs. And he's up there going, Ah, you can do it, buddy! Don't listen to them! What? He looks down, he hears this drunk, and he says, What are you, what are you saying? I said you can do it! I believe in you, brother! He says, you believe in me? Yes, I do. He says, come on up here. Get in the wheelbarrow. Let's go. That's trust. That's the difference between agreeing that something's true and trusting that someone can do something. And Christian faith is rooted in the knowledge of what God has done. The prophecies fulfilled in Christ. Above all, the resurrection from the tomb. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, we say. He is truly risen. And because of that, we know that no obstacle is too big for our God. And we trust that He will fulfill the promises He has made for the future when that time comes in His perfect will. Trust alone can hold on to a promise. And that's what the gospel is. It's a promise to us that God loves us, that he has saved us through Jesus' blood, and that we, in the end, will be glorified with him. Blessed are those who have not seen but have heard, who have not seen but yet believe, Jesus says to Thomas, we have heard through the testimony of the scriptures, the testimony of eyewitnesses of what God has done, and now we can trust what he will do. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious God, how grateful we are that you so love the world that you gave your only son Whoever believes in Him might have life in His name. We thank You that You not only gave Him, but that You made Yourself so vulnerable that You walked among us in Him, that You were present to our every infirmity and weakness, and that now we can see what it means to trust You that when Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit from the cross, you raised him up. And so we can so commit ourselves to you as well. Strengthen us, Lord, and bless us. Help us to lay down our arms and not just agree that you are Lord, but to trust you as Lord and to live in accord with your every word. Strengthen us and bless us in this way. Through the same Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my life.